please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 5 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're continuing on in our series through the book of Ephesians. Well, we've been in the ch- chapter 4 for a while now. There's been obviously a, a lot here for us. Um, this sermon, you can see on the outline, is part two of the t- text that we looked at last week. Uh, that text is really a tight unit, but we've broken it apart because there's, there's so much here. But we're digging into this idea of the new man and the new humanity. Well, what, is, what is it to be a Christian in the church? Back in verse 17, you may recall from a couple of weeks ago, Paul exhorted us that we are no longer to think and live like unbelievers. We talked a lot about how we think affects how we live. Thus, he exhorts us not to think and live in that way. He, he, he introduced this idea of putting off the old man, which is the sin nature. Now, that's something that we as new creations in Christ are to be at work by the grace of God putting off, and that we're to put on the new man. We're to put on Christ, put on Christ likeness. Last week, he got into some of the specifics of what that looked like. So, new creations, for example, put off lying. We put off lying. We, we put on truthfulness. We are, we are to put off anger, fighting to make sure that we give the devil no foothold, right? No base of operation in the realm of spiritual warfare. We're to put off the kind of talk that causes rot in the church. Put on what builds up. And we're to seek not to grieve the Holy Spirit, the one who, by God's grace, caused us to be born again, sealed us for an eternal inheritance. We want to please Him, not grieve Him. And this same line of exhortation continues on as we go today. So, if you're not already there, I do invite you to turn with me 
to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, verse 31 through 5-2. You've probably heard me say before, Scripture is inspired without error, but the chapter and verses came a lot later, and they're not always the best, and this is one of those examples. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 really continue and finish this argument that he's been laying out for us. So, begin with chapter 4, verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The first point on your outline is that Christians are called to put off all forms of anger. As I say on the outline, we're to put off anger and its entailments. We're to put off anger and all that flows from anger. And so, don't miss, anger is a big enough issue that Paul is circling back. He's already hit on this, and now he's circling back so as to really dig into it. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul in verse 26 say, be angry and yet do not sin. In other words, there's a place for righteous anger, but we need to be oh so careful there because, like we said last week, we're not Jesus. And even in instances of righteous anger, we slip off that slippery slope oh so quickly right into sinful anger. And so Paul says, with all kinds of anger, deal with it quickly. That was his point in don't let the sun go down on it. Christians should not be comfortable living in anger. If we're living in anger, sirens should start going off in our head, right? Pull over. You need to deal with this. And he told us why, and this should be very arresting. It's vital to our understanding. He said, undealt with anger provides an opportunity. You could translate, provides a fort, provides a base of operation in the realm of spiritual warfare. Provides that for the devil, right? Here then in verse 31, he returns to this in order to further demonstrate to us how anger can be like a war fort for the devil. He shows us how anger can be what we referred to last week as a gateway sin, as undealt with anger opens the gate wide open to a number of really ugly and divisive sins in the church. And I want to point out that the commentaries that I read this week studying this text, each pointed out a progression that we should see as we look at this list as it goes from internal bitterness to an intense anger, to screaming, and to slander. And and then there's a catch-all at the end, all malice. So, let's unpack this. He begins with bitterness, which is obviously something that, as new creations in Christ, we must put off. And bitterness is that inner resentful attitude that forms as a result of past hurt that has not been dealt with. It's sort of the, he hurt me, she hurt me, so I'm cutting them off. I I don't like them anymore, right? There's, There's resentment there, stemming from something that's happened in the past. And thus, often with this one, there's, there's also a, a lack of forgiveness, which if you know your New Testament, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to live, and we'll come back to that. Uh, this one is typically quiet. 
But boy, oh boy, don't let the quietness of resentment fool you. This is ugly, and this is dangerous. It's dangerous. It is a gateway, a base of operations for the devil to do more damage. We talked about this last week. This can take on a number of looks, but if you're wondering if this is something you might be struggling with, here's just a couple of telltale signs. If you find yourself having arguments with somebody in your head, you're you're probably in this bitterness land, right? You're having those kind of arguments that you, you always win. Or you're having the kind of argument, this boy, you really know you're, you're in bitterness at this point. You're having those kind of arguments where others are watching, and, and, and you pull out the verbal Uzi and meticulously and deftly hit like with every shot, and you come out looking like a rock star. That, that's not good. Uh, other forms of bitterness would be things like avoidance, right? You see somebody coming, you go the other way. Or you're invited to something, sounds fun, you want to go, and then you find out so-and-so is also invited, and you know what? A night in just sounds like the right thing. Bitterness often creates what you may have heard of as referred to as a poisoned well. Uh, Here, the other person, by the way, this happens a lot with bitterness, the other person might not even know they did anything wrong. And and yet there's this poisoned well to the extreme that that other person might even come up and try to pay you a compliment, and somehow you hear in that, she said I looked fat. She said I looked ugly. He said I was mean. In a compliment. Church, this is dangerous. Hebrews 12.15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So please listen to the seriousness of this warning. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Many become defiled. No one's immune to this. This is dangerous, as it so easily leads right into one or more of the other sins on Paul's list here in Ephesians 4. Perhaps it leads to wrath and anger. Wrath and anger. I'm taking these two together. They're virtually synonymous, and they typically show up together on on your vice list. Commentators point out that it's all but impossible to differentiate the two, but when you bring them together, you're sort of saying, this is any and all of everything that falls into what we typically think of as, as anger, right? Uh, the, Greek is, the Greek is thumos and orge, and if this was a cartoon, thumos and orge would be when the face turns red and smoke starts coming out of the ears. This is that state where you're mad, you know you're mad, and everyone around you knows you're mad, and it doesn't matter what term you want to put on it. I'm not mad. I'm frustrated. I'm not mad. I'm, I'm a little tweaked, but I'm not mad. You know, we're in thumos and orge land, Right? This is, this is that dangerous land of rage and indignation, and left unchecked, without falling on our face and confessing it, asking God for the grace to let it go, whatever it is we're mad about. Forgive whatever it need, is that might need to be forgiven. Forbear whatever it is that we might need to step over. When we don't do that, well, that sin can give way to clamor, 
And we probably don't use the word clamor a whole lot, at least I don't, but the Greek word translated here as clamor is also translated as yelling or screaming. So, so here, we move from the verbal oozy of the mind to the verbal oozy of the, of the lips. And, and we know this one's a bad deal. I mean, go back to the beginning of this whole section, the beginning of the chapter. Uh, the, the point in all of this was how we should walk, how we should live to protect unity in the church. This is the exact opposite, isn't it? This is a, this is a unity killer. Like, this is a unity H-bomb, boom, that just goes off. You're bitter, angry, and you start yelling, and when that happens, you say things you probably wish you didn't when the anger and the adrenaline that goes with the anger subsides. And if we go back to the devil's base of operation, I don't have a word from on high here, but I would venture to guess that it's at this point when the yelling happens that they're like slapping high fives, like, <laughs> you know, celebrating victory in that particular battle. And let me just say, if, if, you've, if you've reached this point, re- relationally, you know this one's hard to recover from, but if you've fallen into this sin as a Christian, you absolutely must confess it to the Lord. And then whoever you lost it on. And, and I would recommend being very specific. I'm really sorry. I acted like a complete jerk. I got really angry, and I said X, Y, or Z, and I feel terrible about it, and I'm asking that you would forgive me. And by the way, that's not easy because the devil doesn't want you to do that because that is actually a unity reestablisher, right? He likes you being in unity H-bomb land, not trying to reestablish. Now, depending on how you're wired up, you might not be prone to clamor. Yelling might not be part of what you do. You might be more prone to go from bitterness to anger to slander. Or perhaps you just get the grand slam and go bitterness, anger, yelling, and slander. But however you get to slander, it should not be lost on us that slander comes at the climax of this list, given that malice is a catch-all at the end, as we'll see in a moment. Now, sometimes I'm asked, what's the difference between gossip and slander. We, we often talk about them interchangeably, but they're, they're not really interchangeable. They're, they're, there is a difference, okay? They're both ugly. They're both clearly listed as sin in the Bible. We must treat them as sin, but they, they are different, right? You might think of them as, as evil sisters. They're, they're related, but, but there's a difference. So, what is it? Well, in short, gossip is sharing information that should not be shared. Gossip is sharing information that should not be shared. Slander is sharing information that is not true or partially true with some false information sprinkled in in an effort to lead the hearer to think more negatively about the one you're sharing about or perhaps more positively about you. Gossip can be slanderous, but not all gossip is slander, though all gossip is sin and must be avoided like the plague. So, for example, if Susie shares in small group this week that she hasn't read her Bible in a week and asks you to pray for her, and you go outside of that group and share with others, please pray for my friend Susie. She hasn't read her Bible in a week. 
That's gossip. It's guised in the form of godliness, like, oh, here's a prayer request. But it's, it's gossip. It's sin. You had no permission to share that, no business sharing it. The information itself was true, but that wasn't for you to share in that context. On the other hand, if you were to go to somebody and say, pray for my friend Susie. Can you believe? Like, she hasn't read her Bible in a week. Notice the tone, right? We're already sliding into slander land because by my tone, I'm trying to get you to think ill of Susie. Now, it gets more clear, doesn't it? You could get into something like, please pray for my friend Susie. She hasn't read her Bible in a week. And the fact is, I'm pretty sure it's carrying over into other areas of her life. I mean, I I think she's falling back into some of her past. Did, did, Did you see the way that she looked at John when he walked by? See, that's not only sharing information you shouldn't have, but there was an addition of some untruth there, some some conjecture sprinkled in that damages Susie's reputation with whoever you're sharing with. In this instance, because of what came out of your mouth, the hearer cannot help but think negatively about Susie. John Bloom, staff writer for Desiring God, wrote an excellent article on slander, and I'm going to read a fairly lengthy excerpt because I think it's very helpful. And and I think slander is very pervasive in the American church. He says, quote, slander occurs when someone says something untrue about someone else that results intentionally or unintentionally in damaging that someone else's reputation. And when it occurs, it becomes a divisive, discouraging, and confusing weight that often affects numerous people, sometimes many, many people. Because of the poisonous power of slander, it is one of the adversary's chief strategies. Think back to that base of operations we were talking about. He says it's one of the adversary's chief strategies to divide relationships and deter and derail the mission of the church. We must be on our guard against this closely clinging sin and frequently lay it aside. Sometimes saying something untrue and damaging about someone is bold and blunt. But often slander is insidiously subtle, especially since we have heard slander all our lives in almost every context and grown accustomed to it. This means we must heighten our sensitivity to it and lower our tolerance of it. Amen. Slander can wear a hundred masks, he says. I'll mention a, a few common ones. Sometimes we pass along slanderous information that seems almost like harmless hearsay, yet the effect it has on our listeners is to leave them with an unfairly negative perception of another. Sometimes we embellish with information or tone a negative report about someone in order to enhance our listeners' perception of ourselves. Sometimes we have a very real concern about someone. This is, listen to this. But we share it with someone who cannot benefit from or help with the concern. We do this because we simply want our listeners to think worse of a particular person. Or if we share a concern with an appropriate person, we may sometimes indulge our speculations or presumptions, mixing them almost imperceptibly with the facts for our listeners, distorting the concern in order to sway an outcome in a direction we desire. This next part is very important. He says, The net effect of all forms of slander is to unjustly devalue another person's reputation. This devaluing is 
at the heart of what makes slander so evil. The Bible tells us a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold, Proverbs 22.1. In this context, a good name represents a person's character, which is the most valuable thing about their identity. A good name is who we are in the minds of others. And since relationships trade in the currency of trust, a reputation is a very precious asset. So whenever we handle a person's name, who they are in the minds of others, we are stewarding a treasure that belongs to them. If we damage a person's reputation unjustly, we are stealing their good name. Remember our talk on stealing last week? We're stealing their good name vandalizing their character. This causes very real, sometimes long-lasting damage to people because restoring a devalued name is very difficult. Who knows what love, joy, counsel, comfort, and opportunities we take from people if we care for their name carelessly. God knows, he says, and he hates it. God hates when we speak evil of his name, Exodus 20, verse 7, and when we speak evil of others, Titus 3, 2, he will hold us accountable for every careless word we speak, Matthew 12, 36. This great incentive for us to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, 1 Peter 2, 1, end quote. Bloom alluded to this, but I think we need to be clear. This is another area where we as Christians absolutely need to Seek the help of the Holy Spirit through Holy Scripture to be about the work of renewing our minds. Uh, the worldview of unbelievers is all about gossip and slander. You see it everywhere. What, what happens at your workplace? Around the water cooler or the coffee pot or wherever it is you gather. Can you, can you believe the boss? He, he did this, that, or that. Yeah. A slander, right? You don't know it's true. You haven't even heard from the boss. You might not even know the boss, the head honcho, but you think he's a jerk because of the slander that ha happens. We see it in every TV show or movie you watch. You see it when you gather with unbelieving family, don't you? How many people have you heard about that you don't even know that you think they're just bad people because of what you've heard? I don't know. I kind of think this is one of the main purposes for social media, to just get slander out there. So the world says this is no issue. Do what you got to do. Say what you got to say to get a leg up or whatever. Sometimes slander is even couched as, it's good for you. Just, just get it off your chest, right? Even though you're just ripping some guy or some gal a new one. Church Holy Scripture says, let Scripture renew our mind. And Scripture says, put this off. That analogy of old dirty, grimy, stinky clothes. I mean, here we've rolled in cow manure and everything else. We want to take that up and put it off. And so if someone comes to you and wants to tell you about someone else in the church, before you even have a chance to ascertain if it's gossip or slander, you should ask them, should I be, should I be hearing this? Like, is this information I need to know? Uh, you should also ask them, this is a very important question, have you talked with this brother or sister? No, I didn't think so. Can I, I love you, and, and you know, sin is sin, right? We want to call sin, sin. We've been winking at gossip for far too long. We want to call sin, sin. This is sin, and you should go talk to this brother or sister, and I love you enough. Do you mind if I hold you accountable? Could we talk next week 
And just because just I want to see if that relationship's okay, because you seem really upset with, with that person. Remember, just last week, Paul exhorted us, put off words that rot the church, put on words that build the church, and knowing how damaging slander can be to the unity and the mission of the church, we want to be faithful not to play with this. We want to have our minds renewed by Holy Scripture as to what is good and building, and put that on, and put off what is sinful and rotting. We want to put it off. In fact, Paul ends his focus on anger and its entailment, saying, and oh yeah, put off all malice. His point here is that as we think about anger, this, this, this base of operation for the evil one, he's saying the list I've just given you are examples, but it's not exhaustive. We need to put off any and every form of malice. Malice can be defined as the intention or desire to do harm, right? This is all-encompassing here. This is everything from that internal seething to perhaps daydreaming of or actually saying something ugly. This would include the, the planning of harming somebody to the executing of that plan. And this includes hoping something goes bad for someone and rejoicing when it does, sort of the, ha, <laughs> I knew it was coming for that dude. Yeah, they, they deserved that. God got them. No. Brothers and sisters, not so with us. Remember, Paul says we must no longer think and live like unbelievers, but instead we put on the new man, we put on Christ, which is where he turns the next couple of verses that are absolutely glorious. Look at verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here we see that instead of bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, indeed all forms of malice, we want to put on kindness. In a moment, in the first verse of chapter 5, Paul's going to exhort us to be imitators of God. And back in Ephesians 2 verse 7, we, re we read of the kindness of God toward us in Christ, right? We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We have all rebelled against God rather than following Him like He created us to do. We were following the world, the devil, and our flesh. God is our Creator. He is the eternal King. We were actively living in high treason. He was so kind to us, wasn't He? Think about this. Think about this radical reversal from the mindset of the old man to the mindset of the new. The worldview of the unbeliever says, you cross me? You offend me? You have the audacity to say something about me? Oh, look out. It's coming. It is on. The new man who recognizes the unfathomable kindness that we've received wants to be a dispenser of kindness to others. Now, we know this doesn't come naturally. We see in Galatians 5, this is a fruit of the Spirit. And we see here that with the Spirit of God's help through the Word of God, we must work to put this on. We must recognize that our old sin nature is alive and kicking, 
and, and daily wants to take us to anger, bitterness, clamor, slander, and malice. And we put that off by God's grace, like old dirty clothes, and we put on kindness in like manner to the kindness we've been shown in Christ. Closely, closely related, we're to put on tenderheartedness or compassion. Again, consider the reversal that's put before us here. Bitterness, anger, clamor, slander, those flow from a hard heart. Here there's a call for a soft heart. Here there's a call for the new people of God to have a heart of compassion, a heart that is indeed tender toward other people, even those who may have hurt you. John Woodruff, one of our elders, I think really shows a tender heart, will often say, hurting people hurt people. Uh, just that statement, and understanding that statement, and taking that statement seriously comes from a tender heart. Now, that understanding leads us to say, wow, I know what they said or did, that, that hurt, but I think they must be really hurting themselves. And we want to respond with compassion, as if to say, I don't know what you're going through. It might well be something very difficult. So, Lord, help me to pour grace into the situation. Throughout the Bible, we see God's compassion for sinners shown in His amazing mercy toward us in the midst of our sin. It's the whole point of the compassion, isn't it? And so, as we put off anger and its entailments, we want to ask God for the grace to be compassionate, tender-hearted. Now, this is not to say you don't call sin, sin. I'm not saying, you know, we're in this realm of we just overlook everything. No, no, no. We talked about that last week. You can go back and listen to that. But even when we need to correct, even when we maybe need to rebuke, because those are biblical ideas too, we still want to do it with a tender heart, a heart of compassion, a heart that wants good for that brother or sister. All this obviously is driving us right to the next point, which is this, so vital. New creations put on forgiveness. See, we must always remember we are all, every single one of us, sinners. If you're a Christian, you are a sinner saved by grace. And we all live between the already and the not yet. And while we've been changed, we are not yet what we will be when Christ comes again. And thus, as we've already said, the old man is still alive. We will sin. There will be sin in any local church you go to. You can count on it. And when sin occurs, Paul is telling us that we absolutely, positively must forgive one another. There's no place for the Christian to harbor unforgiveness. It's, it's not even a category. And this goes right back to the gospel itself. Look, look, look back at Paul's ground for forgiveness. Look at the text. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 2, we were told that every single one of us had this huge record of debt that stood against us. And that record of debt is, of course, our sin, past, present, and future, and it was hostile to us. Uh, the picture that text paints is you've got God's perfect standard on one side with all of your sin standing right next to it. That, that's why it's hostile to us, okay? It had us going in the direction of God's eternal wrath. And he didn't have to let that go. And yet, we read that for those who trust in what Christ did on the cross, that record of death, praise God, is completely wiped away, totally forgiven, 
absolutely, positively released as it's nailed to the cross with Christ. And let me just pause there for a minute. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, I do have to tell you that record of debt still stands against you. It's hostile to you. You're standing under the judgment of God heading in that direction, but you don't have to stay there. You can look to Christ, believe what He's accomplished on the cross, and have that removed from your account by God's grace. And I would plead with you, look to Christ today. For believers, every single Christian has had every single sin wiped away by the cross of Christ. And thus Jesus teaches us that for those who have put on Christ, there's no place for withholding forgiveness. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times do I got to forgive someone? Seven? As if to say, maybe we get to the eighth. (laughs) Can rough them up. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Try 70 times seven. And if you know your sevens and all of that in the Bible, his point is, it's limitless. And then he tells a parable of a man forgiven a great debt. And I think this parable is often misunderstood. This debt that he's forgiven of, as best I can understand, sort of comparing currency, this debt that he had is the equivalent of about $6 billion. And then he goes and he finds his friend who owes him 12 grand. And he roughs this guy up for 12 grand. Now, Sometimes that's described as this, you know, it's, not, it's nothing. You know, he roughs him up for a penny. No, 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 12 grand is significant. That, that would be a lot to release 12 grand. I don't care how rich you are, $12,000 is, you know, it's, it's not chunk change. But the point is, 12 grand sitting next to 6 billion, oh, that should cause you to think differently. And, and in the parable, the man who's unwilling to forgive is actually cast into judgment. The forgiveness offered him did nothing to transform his life. His actions demonstrated he wasn't really a believer because a true believer who's been forgiven so much will forgive others in light of the forgiveness we have been granted. See, when we truly come to grips with what Christ has done for us on the cross, it radically changes our outlook on life. Thus the exhortation in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 5. Look back at the text. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here we're told to be imitators of God. And as we know that Jesus has perfectly revealed the Father to us, we are called to live our lives with a like kind of love. This is what we're to put on, a like kind of love demonstrated by Jesus himself. In this, then, we see both the ground of our love and the example we're called to follow. We know what love is because Christ died for us. If Jesus didn't die for us, we're not even having this discussion, but he did. That's why we sing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Jesus shows us love in such an unfathomable way in his death on the cross for sinners like us. And while Paul has already told us in countless different ways of the love of Christ. Here he calls us to love one another with a like kind of love. And when we step back and try to answer the question, what does that look like? We needn't look any further than the cross. 
Jesus shows us the way. Verse 2 is the key here. We know what love is when we look to the cross. That's our north star. If you're, if you're wondering what love is, look at the cross. It helps us understand that our love for one another is love for the brethren. That's what this text is talking about, by the way. This is, you know, there's, there's other texts that talk about loving our enemies and, and those outside. This text is getting at love for the brethren. And looking to the cross helps us understand that that is more than a feeling. It's not something I do only if I'm feeling an affection for someone. It's not something I do only if that person is acting particularly lovable in that moment. Remember John 3.16. I think it's helpful here. There we read, for God so loved the world. And if you know John's literature, that, world, that word world, cosmos, isn't simply referring to the globe. In John, the world is the fallen created order in enmity against God. And thus, when we think of Jesus' love for us, we must remember that He died for us not because we were deserving, not because we were so wonderful. No, He died for us, really in spite of our ugliness. If you think about a boy loving his girlfriend, he might say he loves her because she's beautiful, she smells nice, she's got a pretty smile, great personality, she's kind, and so on and so forth. When we think about Christ's love for us, we must remember, kind of keeping with that same analogy, He loved us when we were completely unlovable, when we had messed up hair, bad breath, bad attitude, severe gas problems, you name it, and He loved us anyway. And He loved us so much that He died for us. He laid down His life for us. Still, we can miss this. We might be inclined to read this in sort of a one-to-one -one fashion and say something like, well, yeah. I'd lay down my life for my friend. Some of the manly men in here might say, I'd take a bullet for my wife or my friend. And I trust you would. I think most guys would. And yet, why is it that some of us same guys who boast of being willing to take a bullet won't even turn off the TV or the game box when your wife needs a hand around the house? Why is it that we're not willing to lay down our own plans, maybe to watch a ball game that day when a brother or sister has a need. Think of some of the ways Jesus laid down His life, all culminating in the cross, but let's put some flesh on this. Now think about that time Jesus is going along, He's been teaching, healing the sick, laying down His own desires, and, and He tells His desires, this is right, tells His disciples, this is right before the feeding of the 5,000. He says essentially, let's get away for a bit, guys. We need some rest. It's been hard. My cousin, John the Baptist, who was the mentor of some of you guys, he just got his head lopped off. I know we're all hurting emotionally. We're tired. We need some downtime. And as they're going, we're told that he sees the crowd following him. And the text says he has compassion, tender heart on those following. And he changes his plans mid-course and ministers to them. And he feeds the whole group. Now, don't hear in that. There's no place for rest. I'm not saying that. We need rest. We have to have rest but we're called to lay down our life in like fashion to Jesus. And we could keep going here. How about humbling himself all the way to the point of a lowest slave? Are there, are there things that are too low for us? We should ask ourselves. Are there things beneath us? Jesus lowers himself to the point of the lowest of all possible slaves right before the cross. I mean, in the upper room, hours before the most heinous night the world's ever known, and this is what he does. I mean, I don't know. I, I would have expected, you know, something like, hey guys, it's going to be a hard night tonight. The next several hours are going to be excruciating. 
could y'all just give me a break for a bit? I need to get my head in the right place. But perhaps y'all could even serve me. I could use a cup of tea or something. It's not what he does. He humbles himself. He takes off his outer garment, gets down on his hands and knees, and washes the disciples' stinky, nasty feet, something that a Jewish slave would not do. And brothers and sisters, this is the kind of love being held out to us that we are to put on, to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I trust I'm not the only one who struggles with that. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now Paul says, and I'm challenged to the core by this, Paul says, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the question we'll end on briefly, I know we're out of time. The question we'll end on is how? How can sinners like us put off anger and its entailments, and instead put on kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, and love. And I would submit to you there's only one way, and that is to live today, the moment that I'm in, fixated on the cross of Christ. We want to live with cross-centered lenses. See, see, if I'm fixated on the cross, I consider His compassion, His kindness toward me, I'm able to show compassion, kindness. If I'm fixated on the cross, my pride is cut out from under me. I'm reminded I was in desperate need of His help. If I'm fixated on the cross, only if I'm fixated on the cross, I can forgive my brother or sister who sinned against me as I remember the degree to which I have been forgiven. If we're fixated on the cross, and only if we're fixated on the cross, we can love with a like form of love demonstrated by Jesus. Church, as we live life together in Christ's new creation, we must look to the cross every day. This is not a bootstrapper, do-it-on-my-own, self-help sort of thing. It is in our constant reflection on Jesus, that we can, by God's grace, grow in unity and sweet fellowship because the love of Christ is on full display for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word challenges us. We thank You that Your Word is about the work of renewing our minds. We know, Lord, we know that we need our minds renewed, and we ask for Your grace to live accordingly for Your glory. We love You, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.